0: You stand with me. Uh, we're going to read uh, today from the text that Richard will be teaching from uh, Exodus chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, you could turn there or it'll come up on the screen as well. Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I'll read it for us this morning. It says, Then Moses said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. Then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by the tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. The Lord furthermore said to him, now put your hand into your bosom." So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then he said, put your hand back into your bosom again. And so he put his hand back into his bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. You may be seated.
1: Thank you, Nick, and good morning, everyone. We'll take a moment and we'll pray together before we consider this text. And our theme this morning, which is authenticity and humility in an ongoing series of values that are important to us here at Bethany as the foundation of our identity. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we can gather within these walls. Thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit here with us as a comforter and also as a teacher. And we pray now that you teach us and that you would shape us to take steps in our lives in order that we might better represent your heart, uh, both to you and to one another, knowing that this is for our own healing and well-being, as well as the testimony of your character. So uh, guide us, Father, as we commit the time to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, When I teach in Austria every year, I, I often show up right around the time of a festival in early December called Krampus. So December 6th, is uh, St. Nicholas Day, and that's when kids, like uh, they put their boots out of the door and then they show up and there's candy in their boots because they've been good, right? Well, what if you've been bad? Here's what happens. Uh, December 5th is Krampus. And so in the Alps, there's this long tradition of young men between about 15 and 30 probably, so many of you in the room, actually, uh, they they they'll invest five hundred or thousand dollars in these crazy get-ups, and they'll dress like literally like monsters. They'll dress up like monsters. Their masks are remarkably extensive, with big you know horns and and it's actually you know pretty terrifying. It's pretty terrifying. Uh, and then and then they go through the town with sticks and they hit people. <laughs> I'm not kidding, they do. They like, they're, they're usually on the, on the thigh here, whack. Or more commonly, whack, 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 right? And like if you're an American, this is weird to you. So uh, often students are told to stay indoors on the night of the fifth. But uh, I kind of enjoy it, so I go out with a camera and I try and document this just for... Because nobody wants to hit me, I'm an old guy who's boring, no one cares. They're after young, virile people <laughs> when they go out to strike. So uh, what's interesting to me is I'll be in a restaurant and here will be, be four guys sitting at a, at a table and you can see the bottom half of their outfit, but their mask is off. And they're sitting there, and they're, you know, and they're sane and civil to one another. And they put the mask on, and immediately, boom, they're entirely different. They grab their sticks and chains. They don't hit people with chains, but they rattle the chains to scare people. And, they, and then they go out, and they literally become monsters. Does this, does this make sense? And so uh, it creates a sense of terror. This most recent time that I was there, uh, Uh, in, in Salzburg, there were like, these monsters were wandering through a mall and they're Syrian refugees who have just got off the plane and I'm looking around and I'm like, they have no idea (laughs) what's going on right now, right? I just arrived and I think I'm coming into a civil sane culture. Only there are monsters everywhere hitting people, right? So I share all this with you to talk about the distinction between who I am without the mask and who I am with the mask, and to tell you that throughout all history, in every culture, there are masks. There are masks everywhere. In every single culture, people wear masks, and there are ceremonial reasons for doing this, cultural reasons, religious reasons. But when we talk about masks as a a type of the way in which we hide from one another, uh, the notion of masks goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three, verses seven through 10, where we read as a result of the fall, that uh, we became people prone to hiding from one another. And so I'll just read for you, Genesis 3, verses 7 through 10, a significant passage, actually, where, having eaten the fruit that they were forbidden to eat, this is what we read, the eyes of Adam and Eve were opened, they knew they were naked, they sewed fig leaves together, made themselves coverings, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And so, here's what happens. In the wake of the fall, immediately, we see these, these tendencies in us uh, to, to hide ourselves and to cover. Shame, covering. Fear, hiding. It's all there in those four verses in Genesis. And these are the reasons for masks. Uh, and, and I don't mean literal masks, though it, though it applies. It mean, I mean... Our, our propensity to present a public self, and then there's another self that we are in private, right? So, and all of us have masks to a, to, an, to an extent. If you have a Facebook account, you have a mask, right? Because there's your Facebook self, which like, you're always eating gourmet food, and you're, you know, you're always skiing, and you're always in love, and you're always happy, and then there's the burnt food, you know, I never see this on Facebook, how a Killer argument with my wife today. She's not speaking to me. Who posts that, right? And then, and then, what do you do? Do you like that? Are you supposed to click like? I, I, like, who knows even how to respond? And so, there's, there's a, there's a, a like a dichotomy. There's this public self that we create—a Facebook self, a real self. For for some of you, there's a Sunday self and the and a rest of the week self, right? The Sunday self is holy and carries a big Bible and prays and sings songs. And then, and then the rest of the week self is is carrying an addiction or a shame or a guilt or is overwhelmed because of traffic and commuting and bills and, and injustice and, and, and it's a, it's a division. And, and, and so what can happen over time is this self that we create can become the only self that we know anymore. And we lose touch with our own identity, so we mistake the mask for reality and people who live that way, there are words describing such people. Insecure, hypocritical, arrogant, fake. And can I just say to you, living this dual life is both ugly and exhausting. It's exhausting to try and you know, forever be someone other than you actually are. And not only is it exhausting, but it's not the life to which you're invited in Christ. And so if you want a different path, and you're asking, you know, how can I live differently? How can I have, you know, one self rather than two, or in some cases, three or ten how do we go there? Uh, The answer is around these words that we're looking at this morning, authenticity and humility. And these are central elements in the gospel for disciples. In other words, if you're a follower of Christ, you're called to authenticity and humility. So when Jesus says in John 10, I've come that you might have abundant life, that you might really live, that you might be filled with, with joy and hope and Healing and generosity—that the 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 very life of the resurrected Jesus would flow through you. You can only do that uh, to the extent that authenticity and humility are part of your uh, identity, the way that you live your life. And so, uh, I'd like to look at three things this morning regarding—you know—three declarations regarding authenticity and humility. Why do these things matter? How are they missed if they're so important? Why do we miss them? And how they ripen? Why they matter? How they're missed? Uh, how they ripen. So here's where we begin. Why do these elements matter? And here's the first thing I'm going to say. Authent- we're going to talk about authenticity and humility. Authenticity matters because it's foundational to our witness. It's foundational to our witness. Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, that uh, when he was among the Corinthians, he, this is what he says, we weren't peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity... We speak in Christ in the sight of God. So, Paul says, look, when I was among you, I was sincere. Now, uh, there's, there's some debates about, you know, the, like the meaning, of the, the origin of the word sincere. <clears throat> a couple of ways of looking at it. But a commonly understood way, though maybe not necessarily the root, but it's used this way. Commonly understood is that sincere means without wax, Right? Uh, sensei and serra, without wax. And, and so it was often said to be uh, rooted in this notion of Greek statues, right? So uh, the word grows up, the Latin word, in a time of Roman and Greek artistry. And so if I make a, uh, a sculpture out of marble, there's a crack in it, and I want it to appear as perfect then one of the things I could do, I suppose, is what? I could cover the crack with wax. And then at least from a distance, you know, the casual eye, you look at it and you go, oh, wow, it's a perfect statue. It's flawless. There's no, there's no cracks, there's no pock marks. And, but of course, the real reason that it's flawless isn't because it's flawless. It's because it's filled with wax, which is all well and good, and, but then you buy it, and then you take it home, you put it in your garden. And like if there's a crack here and you fill out with wax, that would be hysterical, right? Because then the sun will shine and the wax will melt and your nose will be dripping. The statue's nose will be dripping wax. It'd be amazing to see. I'd love to see it. So, (laughs) so it's, you know, I'm pretending to be more than I am. And, and, and Paul here says, look, when I was with you, uh, you saw who I really was. Authentic, right? Uh, No wax, and, and so, you know, why is that important? Well, here's the thing. Nick read Exodus 4 this morning, and that provides one of a few keys in Scripture about why without wax matters. And so I'll just explain it to you because it's a weird passage that Nick read, and, and unless you unpack it, it, kind of you read it and you go, what is that about? Remember, here's what, here's what we read. Uh, God's calling Moses uh, and saying, you're going to deliver Israel out of, you know, uh slavery and then moses when god calls moses he's not like this sign me up i've been waiting for my calling no no he's like some of you are when you're asked to volunteer for something whoa wait a minute you know i've got questions right and so moses has questions and he says he says god look i need credibility like how will they know that you god have sent me And I just make this up, how are they gonna know? And then here's what God says in response. Don't you love this? He says, hey, what's in your hand? Oh, I have a stick, throw it to the ground. He throws it to the ground, it becomes a snake. God says, pick it up, he picks it up, it becomes a stick again. And then God says, that's how they'll know. Now, are you like this? Oh, of course, that makes perfect sense to me. No, like what is that even about? Well, here's the thing, uh, and I don't have time to prove it to you this morning, Uh, I'm going to ask you to trust me. I'll try and reinforce this later. I'll write about it or something, but I want you to trust me for a minute. Um, The serpent in the Bible represents Satan. It's not hard to trust me here because in Genesis 3, what's Satan in Genesis 3? He's a serpent. So toss it down, there's a serpent, pick it up, it becomes a, a, a stick. Now, you don't pick up a serpent, you run from it. But God says, your credibility is established when If there's a conflict, watch this. If there's a conflict, you don't run from the conflict. You don't cover over the conflict. You engage the conflict. And in the context of engaging the conflict, boom, credibility. All of us need to hear this, especially if you're Swedish, right? Because if you're Scandinavian, like I've been there... They're conflict averse people. And just, I'm generalizing, but you get it. You understand what I'm saying. Like, oh, yeah, everything's good. It's all good. Everything. Oh, yeah, no, there's nothing wrong. And then what's actually happening is there's this, you know, passive aggressive stuff going on underneath the surface because we we don't have the courage to have a conversation. God is saying this credibility is established when you're willing to tell the truth. (laughs) It's pretty significant, actually. Not just for marriage, in every area. But then, Here's the next thing. So he picks up this, uh, the snake, becomes a stick. Then God says, Put your hand in your bosom. So I should have worn a sport coat or something this morning, but anyway, this is what it is. he puts it in, pulls it out, and it's leprosy. Puts it in, pulls it out, and it's healed. And then God says again, That's, that's how they'll know that I sent you. What's that saying? Well, uh, leprosy. There's a picture in the Old Testament, for many, many reasons, of sin. So here's what God is saying. It's really, it's very, really very liberating to me. God is saying, look, your credibility, Moses, will be established, not because people will see you as perfect, but because they will see you, Moses, they'll see you as on a journey of what? Transformation. From leprosy to wholeness. From sin uh, uh, to heal being be healed of sin from greed to generosity, from anxiety to peace, from lust to love, from an out of control life to, to, you know, to wisdom. You're gonna, you, you will tell a story by your life, Moses, of movement. So here's the, look, I'm just gonna say this, is very important. If you present yourself as already having arrived, you've got nowhere to go, <laughs> other than down, when people see who you really are. <laughs> So, so what God is saying here to Moses is so liberating. He's saying, look, you don't have it all, Moses. You have leprosy, but don't worry about it because people will see your movement from here to here to here. And Moses did move, right? He had melancholy, he had self-pity, he had anger, he had kind of a withdrawal pattern in his life, and he moved. And the movement's the credibility. I mean, Moses didn't like confrontation at all. And then God says to Moses, you're gonna, look, you're gonna go confront Pharaoh, he doesn't want to go. He goes anyway. This is movement. And then he moves from being kind of, you know, a fearful character on the run, hiding in the desert, to, you know, when Pharaoh says, if I ever see you again, I'm going to kill you. Like, I would have been like this. Okay, I'm leaving. (laughs) But Moses says, well, I'll never see you alive again. And he walks out with boldness. And that transformation is his credibility And that's what God is saying to us, right? In other words, unlike any other belief system in the universe, your credibility is is established, listen, not by posturing, not by fake it till you make it, not by pretending you know, not by presenting yourself to be holier, happier, more successful, wiser than you are. You don't have to do that. You're liberated. You're free. (laughs) In fact, to the contrary, your credibility is seen by the reality of your failures and your not having arrived and your movement from 2 Corinthians 3, from glory to glory to glory to glory. People are seeing you become more like Christ. That's your credibility. And this is what makes reading the Bible so much fun because the Bible is is chock full of stories of transformation. Not of of people who've arrived, but of people who are utterly broken, God has preserved, honest stories of transformation rather than highlight reels of success. And I, I love that about the scripture. Moses, Anger, melancholy, withdrawal. You know it, right? God says to Moses um, in, in Numbers something, 20, I think, hey, speak to the rock. Do you know the story? Speak to the rock. And By then, he's fed up. I mean, he's been with Israel for a couple of years now, and they're whining about everything under the sun. And he's, you know, he's tired of whining. And so he, he says, speak. And then Moses says, I'll show you who's in charge. And he hits the rock instead of speaking to it. Anger problem. Uh, with here's a withdrawal problem with the most. He's tired. Numbers twelve. Like he's tired of leading. Somebody been there, tired of leading. And so <laughs> he wakes up one day, and some of the people who were supposed to be following aren't following, and said they're complaining. And how was this decision made? And why did this happen? And I didn't get a vote, and you get it, right? And he's tired. So this is what he says. He goes to God. He says, "God, if I have to lead these people one more day, kill me." that's what he says. I love that, actually. It's underlined in my Bible. I'm like, yeah, I can identify with wanting to quit. You don't know how many letters of resignation I've written over the course of my 35-year ministry career. I mean, more than one, right? I run them by my wife. She always, you know, laughs and tears them up and <laughs> throws them in the air. Ha, ha, yeah. Try quitting. You're called. You can't run from God's call. She'll say it every time. I hate that. But, but here's, you know, like, here's Moses. Melancholy, angry, David, lust, lying, Jonah, you know, go north. Thanks God, south he goes (laughs) immediately. Peter, overconfidence, and then self condemnation and shame. God is interested not in, you know, putting you on display as having arrived, He's interested in writing through your life a story of transformation, but He cannot write a story. God cannot write a story of transformation if you pretend you've already arrived. And authenticity frees you from needing to pretend. Isn't that beautiful? And then there's the, the, here's the second thing, humility. And humility matters because humility becomes the basis of our, our, our need and our transformation. In other words, uh, when, when we're told that Jesus is, you know, gentle and humble of heart, um... We wonder, you know, how can Jesus be humble when he's perfect? But this is because we, under, we misunderstand what humility... Humility isn't about being hard on yourself. Oh, woe is me. That's not humility. Humility means you see yourself as you really are, and how are you? You're needy. You have a need. Oh, yeah, but Jesus, he didn't have any needs. Really? Here's Jesus. My teaching's not my own. It's from the Father. My will is not my own. My judgment's not my own. My authority's not my own. My strength is not my own. My life is not my own, not to mention, every time I take a drink of water, it comes from the Father. <laughs> when the sun comes up, my vitamin D is not my own. <laughs> my food is not my own. I didn't earn it, they're all gifts. Jesus needy. Even Jesus didn't see himself as this quote, unquote, you know, self-made man, no one is. And so, so here's what happens. The humble person understands that everything's a gift. Everything's a gift. And, and, and so, you know, when I, when I take a drink of water, I'm mindful, and even in drinking water, I'm mindful. This is, I mean, I didn't earn it. It's a gift. And there are a lot of people this morning who don't have access to this. And a lot of people around the world this morning who are gathering like this in, you know, in, in, in a state of courage because they're gathering in fear of their lives. We don't. Our freedom's a gift. Our food's a gift. Our education's a gift. What do you have? Here's Paul. What do you have that you didn't receive? It's a rhetorical question. (laughs) And here's the right answer. Nothing. And what this does is it creates in us, I hope, a sense of profound appreciation so that we begin to live lives of gratitude because we see in 1 Corinthians 10 that... uh, uh, like whining and complaining about the cup always being half empty is precisely why we're outside of God's story all the time. You know, poisoned by bitterness. And how do I overcome bitterness? Ironically, humility, because humility makes me see that I'm a needy person. And if I see that I'm needy, then I begin to appreciate the gifts that God has given me all around me. Gifts of not just water and, you know, education and, and health and food and freedom, but particular people in my life. Who shaped me and who continue to make you know, Bethany run and all. I mean, every day's Christmas, that's what I say to people. And God's always dishing out gifts all the time. And, and to, to the extent that we see ourselves as needy, we begin to actually appreciate the gifts and give thanks. This week, I was, um, I was coming down from where we live in the mountains and I was going to bring some, some chocolate with me. That I keep hidden away in a drawer. I keep this chocolate hidden away in a drawer because we're living in kind of a commune right now, basically. Like, there's my daughters living with me, and my son-in-law, and you know my mother-in-law. And I just know if my favorite chocolate is left out in public anywhere, it's going to magically disappear. So I've hidden it away, right? And so, you know, I go. Uh, I think it's Tuesday, and I just reach in the drawer, and it's dark in there. I reach in to grab my chocolate, and instead. <laughs> It's the same thickness. I grab a little Bible by mistake. I, what a terrible confession of a pastor. I grab a, <laughs> grab a Bible by mistake. I wanted chocolate. I know the Bible instead, and then, and then and it felt like the wrapper even. And then I and then I go, uh, you know, I go in the bedroom and I turn the light on. I go, what, what, the Bible? Are you kidding me? I was so disappointed. Well, <laughs> here's the thing. The Bible. This is my. This is a gift from my dad. Excuse me, a gift to my dad. And so the inscription inside, dated 1933. My dad was 15 years old. And so, you know, I see it there, I throw it on the bedside. Ah, chocolate, I want chocolate. And then when I'm, coming, I'm driving down here, I, th- I thought, well, you know what? I'm just going to throw this Bible in. Maybe it'll be a good sermon illustration. Who knows? So I put it, in, put it in my bag and then I'm, I'm down here Tuesday night and Tuesday was a hard day for a bunch of reasons. Anxious, anxiety, I had anxiety Tuesday about building and expenses and different things. So I'm worried and I open the thing and I read what my aunt wrote to my dad. Dear Romaine, that's my dad's name. Hey, uh, remember Philippians 4, 6 is one of many promises from God that's true and then that's what she wrote, no matter what happens no matter what happens. And uh, so then I flipped through the Bible to look at Philippians 4, 6. Nothing else in the whole Bible is underlined other than that one verse. So apparently my dad had, you know, read the inscription and gone and underlined that verse. Here's that verse. Hey, don't, get this, on my day of anxiety, Philippians 4, 6, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, man, I, so I read that verse, and I went back and read my aunt's thing again. And this is what she said: These promises are true, no matter what happens. No matter what happens. So my dad, 1933. You know what happened to him? 1939 happened. 1940, World War II happened. And and for him, World War II meant every year pneumonia which weakened his lungs and he got home and then uh, uh, he and my mom uh, had a child that died at birth and led to, for her, a surgery she could never have children. That happened. Peace of God. Well, that's why I'm adopted. That's why it's my family. It's probably why I'm standing here. And then, and then uh, every year dad would go to the hospital with the flu or pneumonia. His lungs got so weak that though he, you know, he was sport in college, he was, he was basketball, baseball, and uh, track. He couldn't walk to the car without an oxygen tank. <laughs> no matter what happens, the peace of God. And only retrospectively can I look back. I mean, my dad would come home when I was in junior high and more awkward then than I am now, if you believe it, right? And I'd come home, and I'm out shooting baskets. Dad would come out, and he'd say, "Hey, let's play a little horse." And I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah." See, he, you know, he loves basketball. You know what? He'd go inside, wheezing, and use oxygen. It wasn't horse. It's relationship. <laughs> it's you know what? I'm not going to be consumed with self-pity. I'm going to love my son. I'm not gonna be consumed with self-pity. I'm gonna still be the, you know, the joker that I always was. Bought these fake hot dogs and put them in the refrigerator and mom puts them down in the garbage disposal. They shoot out like rockets and <laughs> screaming, we're all laughing. And there's dad with oxygen. You know, the author of the joke. You know, I, I'll just say, I mean, this is just one little thing. But who are we? None of us are self-made. The marks of my dad are all over me, and I was reminded this week in this little Bible. Yeah, what do you have that you didn't receive? It's a rhetorical question. Nothing, and the humble person realizes that everything's a gift, and then we then we're like then we are we're like little kids and we receive and we rejoice, and and this whole attitude then actually frees us from posturing and self-justification as matters tremendously because when I pretend to be more than I am, I justify myself. And when I justify myself, I look like Saul, not David. And when Saul's confronted with his sin, he says, here's why it's not a problem. And when David's confronted with his sin, a sin, by the way, which would disqualify him from ministry anywhere in the United States today, when he's confronted with sin, this is what he says, against you and you only have I sinned, you're justified, God. If I'm dead now, you're a just God. So give me mercy, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I wanna be in your story and it's all I want. Here's David saying, uh, I wanna be in your story. And here's Saul saying, listen, don't, don't, don't harm my reputation. Like what do you care about? Your reputation, that's called a mask. And, and, and David's over here and he names his sin and his sin is memorialized and his confession is memorialized. And all of us are the beneficiary because what we see is a story of transformation. Who knows your story of transformation when you pretend to be more than you are? And here's the answer, no one. <laughs> because the only way I'm known is by taking my mask off. So, you know, why do we miss these elements as we, as we press on here? Well, there's two, really, two reasons. We're afraid of God rejecting us and we're afraid of other people rejecting us. That's why we miss it. We're afraid of God rejecting us. So it's in us, we know from Genesis 3, like, when we feel a sense of inaction, when we're mindful of our failure, we run. We know it. We run. Adam ran and hid. Eve ran and hid. Oh, yeah, you know, that was Old Testament. Well, Peter ran and hid after he denied Christ, right? And, 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 and many of us, like, we run, we hide, we cover, we pretend. We, we, we either present ourselves as being better than we are or we're completely out of the game However we do it, it's all rooted in the wrong view of God. Because here's the thing, you may be running from God, but God's not angry at you. (laughs) And so, you know, the, the great question, most profound question in the Bible, first question in the Bible, it's God pursuing Adam saying what? Adam, where are you? And the subtext isn't, hey, I want to find you so I can destroy you. The subtext is, Adam, where are you? Because understand, Adam, you are made for relationship with me, and you will never know life until you come clean. So come, name it, admit it, confess it, and then there can be restoration. There cannot be restoration, though without confession. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 11 about coming to him when we're weary and heavy laden that he's the answer, right? Like, look, here's Jesus. Are you weary? Well, what would make you weary? Not just the commute, Or, 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 you know, or taxes, though those make you weary. (laughs) Look, I'm tired of anxiety. I'm tired of lust. I'm tired of fear. I'm tired of greed. I'm tired of my own sexual confusion. I'm I'm tired of credit card debt. I'm tired of being overwhelmed. I'm tired. And here's what Jesus says, come to me. I'll give you a lecture. No. I'll shame you. No. I'll pull you off the team. No. Come to me and I will give you what you really need, rest. And you can you can just kinda allow yourself to be wrapped in the arms of an infinitely loving God and just be there. And cry if you have to. And it's good to be there. But why would I come? Well, here's why. Because I would I would have enough self-awareness to say, you know what? In this moment, I'm needy. It's the only reason I come. Come to me, all who are need, you know, you're weary. I, when I admit it, I come to Christ. And then, then I find, I find what I need. This happened in early in our marriage with my wife, uh, in her relationship with my mom. You know, we lived in my hometown of Fresno when we were first married, and my my wife and my mom—I'm just going to say it this way—you don't need to hear the whole story. They weren't close when we first got married. We'll just—we'll say it that way, right? I think it had to do with me being the—you know—the only son in the family, and my dad had died, and my mom was like, "There's nobody good enough for him," you know. And then she certainly let Donna know that there was nobody good enough, you know, for me and all that stuff. And so it was not good. It was. Uh, I, It was unpretty, if that's a word, for a long time, several months. And then here's what happened. So, you know, uh, in this, like we got married in September and sometime late winter, early spring, whenever it was, um, Donna got sick at work. Uh, I mean, she was really in a lot of pain and I was away somewhere, I don't know where I was, but I was unavailable. So she took the bus home and was gonna, and, and then she realized she left her keys at home and so she was locked out of our apartment. So she's in great pain, and has a fever, whatever's going on, and she has no, and there's nowhere to go. Well, she's a mile from where I grew up, my mom's house. So, so Donna, she walks a mile to my mom's house, knocks on the door. My mom opens the door, and here's Donna. She's bur- Donna bursts into tears, and she goes, I'm sick, I'm sick. <laughs> my mom just hugs her, brings her in, here. You need, and now my mom's in her element, (laughs) the caregiver. Do you know what? That healed their relationship completely. But it took it took this moment of my wife saying, "Look, I need you right now. I don't have it all together. I'm, I'm sick." By the time my mom, you know, was In her last days, I mean, she was so... Donna went down more often than I did to care for her because of my work schedule. And then I'd go down sometimes, as my mom. Like, I'm the son. She'd say, where's Donna? (laughs) Where's Donna? Oh, Donna didn't come? Yeah, they... They're close. Rooted in vulnerability and humility and need. Oh, I yeah, you know, Look, I'm fine, God. And here's why: you know, devotions, church. You know, I come at nine; it's crowded. I get a seat. You know, I park eight miles away. Like I'm holy. No, no, no. Need is what, is what. It's why we come to Christ. Need. And if I'm so not self-aware that I don't see need, then I don't come to Christ. If I don't come to Christ, I don't receive all that He is. So that's the first thing, like I'm afraid of what God will think. Second, I'm afraid of what other people will think. Because if I can just say, to the extent that the church is religious, rather than Christocentric and grace-filled, we end up actually condemning each other. And the church, which of all places ought to be a safe place to let go of our masks, often is not, it's often not a safe place. It says in Second uh, chapter three, verse fifteen, Paul speaking about authenticity in this whole passage. Paul says to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over our hearts. And what do you, here's what he means by that. Look, when we f- if we fixate on the law, then we then we create a performance paradigm. And a performance paradigm. Look, if you perform, you're in. If you don't perform, you're out. Like if you would know it, if you do it my way, you're right. If you don't do it my way, you're wrong. You're, you're up, you're down, you're in, you're out, you're saved, you're lost, you're justified, you're condemned. And and like and we make these categories as if we know. <laughs> and can I just say to you, we don't actually know. We do know this. Christ is the door, we know that. We know that Christ is the only means by which any of us will ever realize transformation. We know that, that all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ. We know that. We know that Christ is gracious, infinitely forgiven, uh, forgiving. He's just. He's holy. We know all of that. But I don't know who's in and who's out. I don't know. <laughs> and so, so can, can the church be a place where I can... Take my mask off and let you know my struggles with my sexuality or my questions about my sexual identity or my struggles with my marriage or drinking or anger or fear or whatever it is that happens to be in my story and know that right here it's safe. Can I know that it's safe? I hope so. Great video. It's safe for many. I hope it's safe for you. And I hope you are safe for others. Because it's unsafe when the law prevails. And then here, just as we close, we ask the question, okay, how do these things ripen in our lives? Like, how do we move into humility and authenticity? And it, just in a, in a nutshell, here's the deal. Like, I only, I only come to Christ in a, in, a, in a real way, not just with words, but in a, in a real way. I only come to Christ in the base of need. It's the only way. It's the only way we come to Christ. If you're in Christ, it's because at some point you saw you had a need. You saw it. And then we're told in Colossians, uh, look, in the same manner in which you received Christ, so now continue to walk in Christ. So if you receive Christ with empty hands, then how should, what's my, what's my calling every day? Empty hands, that's my calling. Look, I still have needs. God's not done changing me. I've changed some here and here, that's good, but it's not done. And so here's the beauty. The more I focus on Christ, the more I'm able to see my need. Does this make sense? Like when, when I encountered the real Jesus who says, love your enemies, lay down your life, go the second mile, turn the other cheek, don't resort to violence, be, you know, be preemptively forgiving, I go, wow, that's not me. I guess I need Jesus to continue to work at transformation because I'm not there yet. Does this make sense? Whereas if all we do is look around at each other and our own you know, prescriptive understanding of the law, we can very easily define the law as the way we already are and say, look at me, I have no need for God. I've already arrived. And we would never say it that way, not here, but we live it that way sometimes. We need to see. Hmm. That's why I turned to the Lord at 20. My life was falling apart, and I saw. But it actually gets harder sometimes the older we get because we, then we begin to think, oh, no, I don't need, uh, uh, no, I've got it now. I've got it now. I don't have it now. Every time I turn to the Lord, the veil is taken away, every time. Uh, when, I, when I ski with my friends, uh, my, these two neighbor girls, who are eight and 12, I feel like a great skier, right? Like, I feel like, I, like I'm, you know, I'm the mountain man. I'm a skier. And then I ski with my neighbor, who, like, does helicopter things. And, and then it's always like this. He's waiting for me, you know, 20 minutes down at the bottom. Smoked a pack before I get there, kind of thing. Oh, yeah, where's Richard? It's because. Uh, and then when I see him, I go, oh, you know what? I, I need to learn from you. Do you get my point? When I see Jesus, I want to learn from Jesus. I, I want to be a man of peace in my heart and, in, and with you. I want to be somebody who's not afraid of conflict but can speak the truth in love. I want to be somebody who really means it when I say my money's not my own. I, I want to be somebody who's unafraid to be seen I want to be like Christ. and As soon as we see that, we enter into this journey of transformation. But I will not see it if I'm pretending to be other than I am. Because the only reason I pretend is to, is to prevent myself from needing transformation. Every, time, every week, we have people up here that are available to pray. I think they'll be here today. And we have these little prayer books as well. Can I'm just, I just going to just say to you, you know, when we, every week when we have a response, you're free to come. You don't have to come. A few people come. But can I just, I'm going to share with you the value of coming and ask for prayer. What, you know what you're saying to the whole community? I'm not done. That's what you're saying. It's a gift to the whole community when somebody comes and asks for prayer or writes in a prayer book because it's their way of saying, God's moving me. And so maybe this morning, as we respond and the musicians come up, I'll just say, you know, if if God has spoken to you this morning and you realize you need movement, I'm dealing with anxiety, I want peace. I'm dealing with greed, I want generosity. I'm dealing with lust, I want love. Come and pray with someone. Or if if, if that's too much, come and write it down in a prayer book. It's a gift to the community because then others who also haven't arrived say, oh, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. And here's the thing, you're not alone. All of us are on a journey. Father, meet us now. And teach us to become people of authenticity unmasking in order that you be seen. To the extent that we pretend, forgive us. And as we turn to you and the veil is taken away, may we express our need to you and one another. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's worship together and respond.